Welcome to Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. Triple Threat Theater. However, I believe there is a more immediate threat. Thousands and thousands of feet of film consumed. Hours and hours of work expended by technicians. And once it's been erased and shredded, it can be done all over again. As all of you know, I've devoted much of my life to convincing the world that travel through film was not only possible, but necessary to survive. Good Lord, we've done it again. We're back. Triple Threat Theater. I'm Joe Daxberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. Millsy. Yeah. Episode 36. Mm-hmm. The end of season three. Can't believe we're already at the end of season three. How about that? Before you know it, it'll be the beginning of season four. I know. Wild. <laughs> I like this season jargon. Yeah, I I think we started doing it just to give ourselves a little break because we didn't know how bogged down we'd be in all the work of the show. <laughs> right. Uh, Look at us, forward thinking. Yeah. It's not like we give ourselves a lot of time. I mean, it's just an extra three weeks, but. Right. Weeks can count pretty well. Yeah, I don't know. Works for me. Yeah, me too. So yeah, we made it. (laughs) Which is our catchphrase that we made. (laughs) Wherever we are, we've we've made made it. it. Now, I think this is a fun episode to end the season on. Yeah, it's not without its charms. Mm -hmm. This was your theme. You Mm -hmm. came up with this one. Mm -hmm. We got Future Shock. Mm -hmm. 1982's Blade Runner. Yes. 1989's. Back to the Future 2. Yes. 1993's Demolition Man. Yes. I mean, Millsy, how lucky are we to have two phenomenal movies in addition to one of the greatest movies of all time? I mean, I don't think Back to the Future and Blade Runner are that much worse than Demolition Man. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of, uh, a, kind of a rough thing to say. I would just like letting that... That statement linger just to see how you would respond to it. And you didn't disappoint, my friend. I mean, you had to know it was coming. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I, I was like, I take that on head first. I think the the second we stopped recording last episode, I probably made some kind of crack about Blade Runner. Yeah, oh, yeah. I mean, I'd say you probably <laughs> so, go out of your way to make cracks on Blade Runner. So, um, Yeah, I mean, for the uninitiated, I'm Blade, I'm, I love science fiction. I love uh, movies. Well... Asterisk, maybe, but go ahead. <laughs> uh, I'm even a Philip K. Dick fan. <laughs> like, I've read several of his short stories. Mm-hmm. I have a couple of the collections. I've seen many of the movies based on his works. Books? Yeah, man. Oh, go on. Every now and then I do read, and sometimes, not often, but sometimes those books don't have pictures. Go on. Um, I remember there was a assignment in... Uh, the second year of the Kubert School, where we had to uh, like illustrate a book cover, and I chose the Philip K. Dick story "O to Be a Blobel" as the one that I <laughs> that I illustrated, <laughs> which, if you haven't read, is a very good short story. A, I've never heard of it. B, I'm not entirely <laughs> sure you didn't just make that up. I'll have to see if I can. I'll have to see if I can track down that old assignment. Please. I'm sure I still have it somewhere to post on the Instagram after this episode goes up. One more for those in the back. What was that title again? Oh, to be a blobal. <laughs> of all the things, it might have had an exclamation point on the end. It's O, like O H, a comma, 
to be a blobal. Now, was the assignment you have to pick a, a title that had an exclamation point in it, or did you really no, just pick it was just this a, one book out of all books? We were supposed to choose a book and do a like a cover illustration for it, and uh, one of the sad, simple facts of the matter is that uh, actual books, like full-length books or novels or whatever, mm-hmm. I haven't read many. That's fine. <laughs> like, yeah. I read a bunch of the Alien books and stuff mm-hmm. when I was in, in school, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, while I love to read comics, uh, honestly don't read that many actual book books. Mm. Same here. Um, and at the time, I remember thinking, like, God, what's the last book I read? And I don't know if I could have come up with anything at the time. So I was like, I'll just do this Philip K. Dick short story because it would be fun to illustrate. Milzy, I would say we are doing our listener a disservice by not producing this piece of art for them to see. I, I, like I said, I'll see if I can find it. I mean, <laughs> it's in the archives, right? You got to have it in there somewhere. Like I said, I think I'm pretty sure that I have it somewhere. You know me, I, I never throw anything away. Mm. So. I mean, nothing, uh, I'll see what I can do. Nothing would warm my cold dead heart more than if, like, your mom framed that one and it's somewhere in the house. <laughs> but no, okay, she okay. didn't frame the the photo or the the drawing of a uh, like a single cell blob person organism <laughs> looking through a window. Oh yeah, your favorite shapeless death. <laughs> anyway, back to my point. As anybody who knows me knows, for the most part, uh, yeah, i never just never been a fan of Blade Runner. It's just one of those movies that everybody loves mm-hmm. and just has never done it for and me. Because of that, you hate it. I gotcha. I've never said that I hate it. I've just <laughs> never said that I loved it. Like, it's, it's, all, it's just never done it for me that much. But you have said you hate Ridley Scott. No, I have not said that. Well, I might have said that in the context of... Uh, Two of his more recent alien-related films, which shouldn't really be considered alien-related, despite the fact that an alien may or may not appear in them. Mm. But, yeah, no, Ridley Scott, I will, I've i definitely said that aside from, like, a couple of his movies, I find him to be a very uh, cold, emotionally <laughs> vapid director. <laughs> and, uh-huh. I mean, I guess in certain connotations, that's fine. But I find a lot of his movies to just be very dry and bland. Oh. Usually visually impressive. Uh, like one of the biggest surprises to me in my lifetime was that he's the person who directed The Martian. And I'm still not convinced that somebody else didn't ghost direct that and then he just put his name on it. Because oh. that movie has so much like character and humor and just like entertainment value. Mm-hmm. And most of the stuff that he's produced, especially in the last decade, I think has been very blah. I don't know, because if I remember correctly, Michael Fassbender is very, very much a beast filled with emotion in Alien Covenant. Yeah, he's filled with something. But uh, anyway... <laughs> we're getting yes. off. We're getting off track here. Yes, we haven't officially started talking about Blade Runner oh, yet. But okay. yeah, so so Blade Runner, you know, not always the biggest fan of, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, I one of the like catchphrases I have for that movie is that like I watch it every like couple of years, thinking like, oh, this time I'm gonna see what everybody else sees, and then I like never do, and <laughs> I just rewatched it and talked about it on the sidetrack podcast about. two, three years ago, whenever Blade Runner 2049 came out, Mm -hmm. a movie which I quite liked. Um, Mm. And so (laughs) I like when this episode got picked, I was thinking to myself like, man, it's only been like a couple of years. (laughs) Like, I'm not due to watch this again yet. (laughs) It's like, ugh. 
Dear God. Well, I mean, by all means, by all means, let's get down to the nitty gritty. You just want to dive in? I do. All right. First up, we have uh, Blade Runner from the year of our Lord, 1982. Oh, did you say that because it was my birthday? My birth year? No, I didn't. Oh, did well. you think I refer to you as the Lord? I don't know. <laughs> in I quiet know. conversation? <laughs> no, not I mean, we have a lot of nicknames for one another, as you were <laughs> and I were discussing before the episode. Right. But um, Thankfully, one of them is not the Lord. Yeah, Lord okay. is not one of them. All right, good. Carry on. I mean, now that we've had this conversation, it may be. So, mm. okay. you know, well, time you, will tell on that one. You know, if you know anything about me, Milzy, it's that I'm always open to new nicknames. Oh, I know it. You've coined more nicknames than anybody I know. <laughs> yes. <laughs> She's a replicant, isn't she? I'm impressed. How many questions does it usually take to spot I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. It took more than 100 for Rachel, didn't it? She doesn't know. She's beginning to suspect, I think. Suspect? How can it not know what it is? Commerce is our goal here at Tyrell. More human than human is our motto. Rachel is an experiment, nothing more. We began to recognize in them Strange obsession. After all, they are emotionally inexperienced with only a few years in which to store up the experiences which you and I take for granted. If we gift them with the past, we create a cushion or pillow for their emotions, and consequently we can control them better. Memories. You're talking about memories. So on the topic of Blade Runner, which version did you watch? I watched uh, Blade Runner, the final cut. Okay, that's the one I watched mm-hmm. because I can say that I've seen the theatrical cut and either the director's cut or the final cut before. Mm-hmm. Maybe both. I don't know. Okay, it's probably like my fourth or fifth time watching Blade Runner. And one thing I can say is that the movie is definitely improved when you take out the narration. Mm. So. It was my goal to watch a version without the narration for this review to give the movie its best chance. Oh, I like that. I appreciate your conviction. But to begin the discussion, let's talk a little bit about the history of this film and how many goddamn versions there are. Yes, sir. Because at minimum, I have found evidence of seven different versions of this film. Wow. Yes, that sounds about right. And I would like to now take you through (laughs) a brief history of the different versions of Blade Runner. Please do. I would would by no means ever consider myself a Blade Runner historian, but there's been many times I've looked into, because I enjoy this movie so much, I have looked into all the ins and outs of its production and the aftermath. So it's Mm -hmm. fascinating. So this is the short version. You can read more about it online if you want. Mm. But we begin with the work print. Most movies have one of these. This is like the rough cut that they'll typically show to test audiences. Uh, This clocked in at 113 minutes and was produced and shown in 1982. And it got negative reviews from test audiences, which resulted in what is known as the San Diego sneak preview. (laughs) 
which was shown one single time in 1982. It is almost identical to the theatrical version, but with three extra scenes that have never been included in any other cut aside from the San Diego sneak preview, which was, again, only shown once. And it was the debut of the happy ending, which was surely a result of the work print, which test audiences did not care for. Correct. Next up, we have the U.S. theatrical version, also called the domestic cut or the quote-unquote original version, released in theaters in 1982 in June, which clocks in at 117 minutes. This is the introduction of the narration, which Harrison Ford and Ridley Scott were both very much against, but financiers felt that audiences seemed to be too confused by the plot of the movie, Uh so they thought that the narration would help. And... uh, that's gone down as his, in history as being one of the worst decisions I think a studio has ever made with a popular film. That, yes. Uh, next up is the international cut, which is also called the Criterion version. This one is also 117 minutes, but somehow, despite the fact that it's the same length as the U.S. version, uh, includes more violence than the U.S. version. And it's called the Criterion version because it was also the version that was released on Criterion, I think, Laserdisc back in the day. Okay. Next up, four years later, we have the U.S. broadcast version, mm-hmm. which is 114 minutes long from 1986, which was trimmed for violence, profanity, and nudity by CBS when it was aired on television. Then, jumping ahead a little bit, to 1992, we have the director's cut, which is 116 minutes. And I find it hilarious that Ridley Scott also did a director's cut of Alien, and it managed to be one minute shorter than the theatrical version. Same thing here. Hmm. His director's cut is one minute shorter than the U.S. theatrical version of Blade Runner. So the reason, so none of the previous versions had Ridley Scott's like final approval on everything. Mm-hmm. Like the studio was always kind of taking it away from him and doing what they wanted, such as adding in the narration. Correct. So what happened was uh, somebody got their hands on the work print version, the original original cut from before it had the happy ending, which all of the subsequent versions had, and was unbeknownst to Ridley Scott and against his wishes, they were showing it around in like limited screenings in 1990 and 1991. And based on the popularity of that, the studio actually came to Ridley Scott and was like, Hey, let's do a director's cut. So he didn't want them to be showing that version because it was like unfinished, but it actually got him a director's cut. Uh, He still did not have complete creative control, but he gave extensive notes including removing the voiceover and the happy ending. Uh, This also reinstated the unicorn dream sequence, which had been pulled from the other versions. And it was all put together by film preservationist Michael Eric, based on Scott's notes. Then finally, in 2007, coming in at 117 minutes again, they released the final cut, which is the only version that Ridley Scott had complete creative control over and is the version we watched and many people consider to be like the version at this point. At this point, yeah, I think... Um, Surely there will be another cut any day now. Yeah, you never know. Millsy, I hope not because I have 10 discs of Blade Runner and I don't Good know if I God. need another 15. How, I is that all one set? No, 
So I have what I call probably other people call the briefcase edition of Blade Runner. Where oh, you have that thing. I have that, which is hard to come by, and I guess it goes for big money if it's still sealed. Mine is not because I watched the hell out of it when I bought it. Um, so that has five discs, and then I have the Blu-ray version that's the same five discs that has, I believe, all the same versions. Um, is the briefcase DVD? It is. Hmm. Well, so if you have both of those versions and you have the coveted briefcase uh, try to put into words how big of a fan of blade runner are you because most people like it like it's one of those kind of generally i would say it's like universally loved by cinephiles Mm -hmm. you know someone like my mother probably wouldn't like it but you know people who like movies tend to like blade runner right but are you just another one of them or since you own the briefcase are you like a mega fan and i didn't know it um, I mean, I, I could say I was a mega fan. Like again, I'm not like the most well versed in every single different of the different versions. Like I've never even sat through the entire theatrical run just because the voiceover is so bad. Like it's like you know pretty much renowned at this point. No one thinks it's good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would say uh, high school. I don't remember exactly when was when I first saw Blade Runner. And at that point, it would have been the 92 director's cut. Mm. So that was the first time I ever saw it. You know, I think it just, the briefcase must have just come out, I think, to coincide with the final cut. I don't know if this is when it first, like if you first could get your hands on the final cut discs, it was released, you know, by itself or in the fancy briefcase edition. But yeah, so I've had that. I mean, I keep it all together. I don't like display the different parts, but there's some cool stuff inside of it. But regardless, as just like a, a life lifelong sci-fi fan, just from seeing it the first time, I immediately like fell in love with the visuals, which I think most people do. Mm-hmm. I want to say it took me a, a while to come around to the story because it's, I think just when I was younger, I don't know, because at times it's slow which I've grown to enjoy thoroughly, but I can remember at the time, maybe even just the the buildup of the movie, expecting more of like an action movie, which it really isn't. Yeah, I would say if you take out the words at times, that statement is true. <laughs> well. If you just abbreviated that to it's slow. I mean, that is that is your opinion, as regardless of how bad it is. I mean, you're the one who said it. <laughs> I said at, at times. <laughs> you said all the time. But regardless, I mean, nothing wrong with slow movies in my in my mind. But I can remember even like when I watch it now. I mean, I don't all th- all three movies tonight. I'll be able to talk critically of so this counts as well. But um, I I mean, rather than like focusing on that, just again, just quickly, the things I love is the, the visuals. I love Harrison Ford. Just the world building, I think, is just like out of control. That I've always been blown away by. You know, we talk at length about practical effects, which this has tons of still, you know, plenty of things like how how would you even do that today, let alone 1982? Mm-hmm. And it it's such you can see like its influence and how far it's gone. Even like when I was watching it for tonight's episode, it's like I'm, I was for the first time I was it feels almost like a live action anime. Not in that like I know so many things are influenced by it. But even just 
like different story beats and just their general look and everything that I think it gets so much like ren- it's so renowned because of its influence that, uh, you know, I don't know. It's you almost don't don't see a lot of people that like discuss the story of it because it's just it's so much about the visual. But that being said, I mean, I enjoy the story because it's just it's just like film noir to me. And then it's ramped up to be sci fi. So it's like a cop looking for perps at its uh, nittiest and grittiest. So, <laughs> and I enjoy that. I mean, it's just that is a thing I enjoy. Yeah, I think for me, you know, I agree with you wholeheartedly on the look of the movie. I mean, it, it's fucking amazing looking. I've said this before about movies I like and movies I don't like, but this would be the perfect thing to just like turn off the sound and put on as like background visuals with music for like, I don't know, a cool Halloween party or something. Just it looks incredible. Nelson, you miss all that music by Vangelis, though. That's see this time more than ever. I feel like I am kind of critical of that score Oh, because I was trying to think about it like. Because, you know, you and I are both fans. Our whole group of friends are fans of this movement of, like, uh, synthwave music that's coming mm-hmm. back now with, like, The Midnight and all these other bands that do, like, music that sounds like it belongs in the scores to, like, 80s science fiction movies. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's moments, for sure, where the music gels with the visuals in an interesting way in this movie. But the the film... It is slow. It is sparse when it comes to dialogue and such. And I feel like the score doesn't help it all that much in that area. Like if the music was potentially a little more upbeat at times, it might not make it feel just so drab. Mm. Like it's amazing to me that the movie can feel so dull to me while I'm looking at like the incredible visuals that I am. Yeah. And just all the neon and like the packed streets and the mixture of like the Japanese and American culture and oh. like all that stuff, the the lights, the just the lighting in the movie itself is incredible. Just how fucking dark it is all the time mm-hmm. and there's most indoor scenes, you know, half of a person or more is constantly covered in black. Like I love, I can't like, there's nothing I don't like about the visuals of the movie, but yeah, I feel like the soundtrack, mm-hmm. it, it's, it's almost like, you know, there's not a lot happening on screen at times. And the, the, the premise, it can be a little, or, and the story and plot can be a little obtuse at times and something mm-hmm. that you really have to pay attention to. And it doesn't help for me that oftentimes the music is just like kind of one droning note. It may be a cool (laughs) synthesizer note, Uh but it's just like you're watching a guy standing in a street in the rain and you're just hearing like, (laughs) and it's like, I don't, I don't know it. I feel like this movie is like daring me to fall asleep when I'm watching it. I just, I mean, that's just like, I, I don't personally find myself super invested in the characters and the story. Mm-hmm. The premise and everything is interesting. I like that whole concept of like the replicants who have a limited lifespan and as they are kind of evolving and gaining emotions the way that Tyrell says that they can when this new version of the 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 replicants that they then have like a desire for life 
And like, I think that that's a really cool concept. Very Philip K. Dick. Uh, and you know, there's one moment in particular of the movie that, you know, anybody who's seen it knows which one I'm talking about that really just grasps my fucking emotions and imagination. And that's at the very end with the tears and the rain speech. Mm-hmm. Like that is just in and of itself. Like you could, like I could hate this movie and that would still be a scene that I would treasure because it's just, it's a, it's a crazy moment. Like, in and of itself, just a fantastic moment in cinema mm-hmm. with great lines, which were apparently altered and partially made up by Rudger mm-hmm. Hauer like the night before, which is fascinating as well. Yeah. Like that whole thing. But just, I, I don't know, the the pacing and just the quiet nature of the movie, it just, I find that when I watch this film, my mind wanders a lot. Mm. And because I knew, you know, that, like the last time I reviewed this movie, like I said, on Sidetracked, you know, I, I don't remember exactly what Jesse's feelings are, but I don't think he has super strong feelings about the movie either way. Uh, so that's like a safe space for me to crack wise about like what I feel about the movie or whatever. But go, but going into this, I knew, okay, Dax is definitely a bigger fan of me, though I don't think I knew that you were a, you know, briefcase toting fan of the mm. film. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so I really, really made an attempt to just like zero in on the movie. It, almost like doing homework. Like I have to like really pay attention to it this time and like try and stay in movie zone. And I would say that by a small margin, this was probably my best experience watching the movie I've ever had. But that said, it's it didn't move the needle that much for me still. Okay. I mean I think it looks great, like I've said. Mm-hmm. Uh, the music in and of itself is kind of neat, but I think it could probably be improved by, you know, a few more BPMs. Oh, but, uh, yeah. I'd... Not an opinion I hold, but I respect yeah. you for it, sir. And the other thing I would say is, uh, you know, it's got a cool cast. There's interesting people in it. And I like Harrison Ford, but I feel like this movie does not play to Harrison Ford's strengths. He's the main thing is he's not charismatic in this yeah. at all. Uh, I mean, him is Harris, him, him is Han Solo. Amazing. Mm-hmm. Him is Indiana Jones. Amazing. Uh, him in this. I feel like you could have gotten numerous other people to play this role and it might have been worse, but it easily could have been better or the same. Mm. which you could maybe say for a lot of movies, but I just, it doesn't feel like Harrison Ford was like born to play this role or something to me. That's fine. I'd say he's got a good face. He makes a pretty good grimace and he could take a punch. So the thing I think I like about him the most in this movie is his hair Mm -hmm. because it just looks like a very uh, like utilitarian haircut. Like, it's not like a cool guy look. Right. You know? It's like, a, I don't I don't give a damn, just cut it. Yeah. So, like, that's very of his character. Mm-hmm. The kind of noir detective that you're talking about. Right. I gotcha. Yeah. So, I don't know. That's my stance. Like I say, I, I feel like I was in the movie a little more this time, but... Uh, as I said, I, I'm always like expecting, oh, this this is going to be the viewing where I'm finally like, what was I talking about all those years? Like, <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. It still it still doesn't doesn't dazzle my senses in every way. Uh, I feel like it could okay. or it does other people. Yeah. I mean, to say dazzle the senses in that like, uh, you know, it's not uh, when you talk about the like the soundtrack. 
or the score rather and how it's kind of like downtrodden uh you know to me i guess that's just people's opinions but to me it's like it fits like the dower setting and the maybe even just like the dower uh characters overall too especially harrison ford this it's gotten to the point when i every time i watch this movie i get like i'm like very creeped out by the replicants not so much even the the idea of it which is like a different conversation but the the characters in this movie the ones that he's hunting because it's always to me it's always like when it's something like a killer android same thing in um alien it's like you, when you can't trust a thing that looks human it's like same with like terminator to a point but in this movie in particular to me it, it's always like the term like emotional terminators and that like always like bothers me you know it's like even at the end where roy could have killed him easily and even saves him just so harris Ford can watch him die you know kind of just like adds to like the creepy nature of these things and that just i i feel that throughout the movie because right up with uh leon you know and like just about the opening scene um and the way he acts and the things he says it's just that there's always like a just like a sense of dread I always have watching this movie. So overall, everything just fits into that. It's another reason, like, I love that there's not a happy ending. Mm -hmm. Like, the ending in the final cut is good. I think it's perfect because it cuts out rather abruptly, and I think that's excellent because it's not, Mm -hmm. it does not never feel like a movie where you'd even expect a happy ending, which is perfectly fine with me. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't have a problem with that. Yeah. I think it's better without the happy ending. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, in any ways that the final cut is is better than the uh, theatrical version, it is all the shit that they cut out mm-hmm. <laughs> from that one. But yeah, so so with the androids themselves, and I guess one of the other things that feels like it's working against like an enjoyment factor for me, perhaps in some way, is that you know they state that the replicants are uh, like unstable or whatever, and they can be dangerous. And that's why it's illegal for them to be on earth. Mm-hmm. And the short shelf life too. Yeah. But then, you know, it's like, okay, there's these things, these replicants, these androids or whatever we've created and they are dangerous. And now there's four of them here. It feels very small scale and, not like that big of a deal because they're like, okay, there's four of these things here and we're just going to get one guy who doesn't even really seem like he wants to do the job (laughs) to go and find them. And it's like whatever other police force there is, they just fuck off and don't seem to care. Mm -hmm. So it just doesn't feel like there's any real sense of urgency. And then you have, you know, they act a little weird sometimes and, you know, you corner Brian James's character, Leon, and he, you know, reacts in an unusual way and kills somebody. But for all intents and purposes, uh, it doesn't feel like there's that much of a sense of danger. (laughs) Like, it's not like these are, you know, just killers on the loose because you Uh never really see them kill. Aside from, again, when Leon is cornered. Uh Or, I mean, at the very end, like you said, Roy doesn't even kill Harrison Ford. (laughs) Right. But like the toying, the toying of him that he does for me, is what makes it, like, creepy to me. Like, he's clearly toying with him, clearly could kill him any time. No, he but is. Like, but it's like, like what a, it's goes a question on in his for me of, like, brain. he's toying with Harrison Ford's character because Harrison Ford is coming after him. 
but he hasn't done a whole lot up until this point to make me feel like, you know, anybody needs to be sent after them. I mean, their, their goal is to get in touch with Tyrell. And when he finally Mm -hmm. does, he murders Tyrell. Right. But that's like very late in the game. And so for a large chunk of the beginning of the movie, it really does feel like, well, what is the, what is the danger here? What is the threat? It just feels so casual. Yeah. Well, I mean, it might even be like, because there's different versions of them that there's not necessarily like a quote unquote threat. It's just, they're not supposed to be there, period. So we kill them. It's like, you almost wonder in a different movie, is it like, you know, Roy and his team land there and start killing people left and right. Is that when there's a bigger response or is it just that, oh, well, we know there's four, four of them are here. Let's send the guy we don't like that doesn't want to be here after him, you know? Mm-hmm. It could be that. Who knows? But yeah. Yeah. I just, you, you get the impression because you only see these couple. You only see Rachel, uh, who's like the newest model or whatever. You see these four who are the villains, or mm-hmm. if you want to call them that, they're the ones that Deckard is after. And then if you subscribe to the Decker is a replicant thing, he's one. Mm-hmm. But like the four that we're concerned with, it's like the reason that they came to Earth in the first. Well, the reason anyone's after them in the first place is because they're being used as slaves and they escape. Then the reason we're after them on Earth is because they came to Earth to try and get answers from the guy who created them. It's not like. You know, oh, when they reach uh, 3.75 years of age, they just turn into psychopaths and want to murder everybody. Like, it's uh, uh it, that just adds to the like kind of dry, slow, not particularly exciting <laughs> nature of the movie to me. Mm. Mm. And I mean, a lot of the time, you know, comparing it to noir, and it is very noirish in style, uh, most of those movies, the detective noirs that we think of at least based on the ones that I've seen are some kind of crime has been committed. Maybe there's a murder, but it's not like I'm after a squad of murderers. It's like a mystery. And there's really not much of a mystery in this film. It's like a guy who's tracking down potential killers. It's not like trying to solve a mystery and having like new evidence come up at different times. So it's like you'd expect kind of a slower methodical story if there was a mystery that was unraveling because you can't Mm -hmm. show all of your hands, but you know who the quote unquote bad guys are in this the whole time. You see them plenty. Mm -hmm. It's just, I don't know. It's a little tonally unusual to me. And maybe that's the thing that people glom onto because it's different from a lot of other films. Mm -hmm. But uh, I don't know. It's just, I think that just adds to my kind of blase feeling when I watch it. Well, Mills, that's just one of those things, I guess. I got a question for you. Mm-hmm. Where do you fall on is Deckard a replicant or not? Uh, based on the version we watched, he, I would think, is a replicant. Yeah. Uh, I mean, the little paper unicorn that uh, Edward James almost leaves him, I, mm-hmm. I would feel pretty much confirms it. Yeah. Because we know... I guess one of the things I'm a little confused on is so earlier in the movie... When Harrison Ford reveals to Rachel that she's a replicant, he asks her about a memory and then he like tells her her own memory before she can even say it, mm-hmm. proving that that's like an implanted memory and it's not yours. Yep. I don't know how Deckard knows that memory because there's no scene of him like going and watching the logs yeah. and seeing the memories or whatever. Right. So I don't know where anybody gets this information. 
But then, so later, similarly, it definitely feels like they're implying that Edward James almost knows the dream that Harrison Ford had about the unicorn, and that's why he left him the little paper unicorn, signifying that if somebody right. else knows his dreams, then he yeah. is a replicant. But where does Edward James almost get that information? I don't know. Right, because you don't really, I mean, you know he's a cop. But it's weird, too, because it's like Deckard is a Blade Runner, but he still drives around in a spinner just like the other cops. So it's like they don't, there's no like hand-holding to let you know exactly like who does what or who knows what. Yeah. I mean, when I watch it, I just see it as Deckard is a Blade Runner, so he knows things about them, be it memories from some of them, or who knows if they all have the same memory. I don't know. But is he supposed to know that he is one? Is he supposed to know that he is one? Yeah, is Harrison Ford supposed to know that he's a replicant? They never imply no. I mean, he doesn't. It's never really implied if he has an opinion of that either way. Not like Rachel, you know, where she's like confronted with it. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, there's definitely like an ambiguity there. So it's like almost when, so a big thing with the different versions is the uh, unicorn dream sequence that was like added back in. So I don't know. Like I said, I've never watched the entire theatrical cut, so I don't know what of that is in there. So to me, if it's not in there at all, and then there is just a unicorn at the end, seems very odd. Mm-hmm. But regardless, with with the unicorn dream sequence in there, you know, you don't know if Deckard Deckard is well aware he himself is a replicant and is like picking up the the unicorn and realizing that Edward James almost also knows or whatever. It's not really. They don't tell you either way what's supposed to be implied. It's more for the viewer, I guess. Mm-hmm. Also, and then something that they never they never speak about, but the eyes, like the reflective eyes, I'm sure you probably noticed watching at different times with the replicants. They have like that glow. Mm, I can't say that I did. If you ever go, I mean, next time you watch it, or even if you just look, check online, there's different parts and it's... I think it goes all the way back to like the beginning when he first meets Rachel and there's the the owl has like the kind of those owl eyes. Mm-hmm. It's like very reflective and she has them. And then throughout the movie, you see each of the replicants have it as well. Like a, to, later on, before Deckard comes to the house and Pris is there and she's almost like she's in shadow, but you can still see her eyes because they're like kind of like an amber glow. That's like a particularly like good shot of it of her later on, but it happens with Deckard too. At one point, in when he's in his apartment with Rachel, he like kind of comes around her, and he's right by like a pillar that's in his house, and you can see it that he's got it as well. So that's always been like a thing people talk about as well, hmm. as like a sign that he is a replicant is the eyes. I've never so, taken notice of yeah. that. Now, do you know is that something that Ridley Scott specifically put in there? Because I thought for years the whole thing was. Uh, Ridley Scott said, or like after many, many years, he finally said, yes, he is a replicant. But the thing is, with the versions that had been released up until that mm-hmm. point, there was no way to tell. I believe, I'm pretty sure they they did something on set to get the reflection. Hmm. I was just wondering if this was like, a, you know, whoever has, you know, smoke breath at the end of the thing. That tells you that they're the thing <laughs> right, or not, right. when that's actually not something that John Carpenter ever did on purpose mm-hmm. or intended, and people just read into it. I'd ha- I mean, I'd have to look into it again, but I'm pretty sure it was, like, done on set to have, to give this to the replicants. And that, that shot of Deckard might have been left out 
in some of the cuts and put back in in the final. I'm not exactly sure. I'd have to look it up again. But as far as I can remember, I think it was that reflective eye bit was put in there on purpose. Hmm. So something to look up later. Yeah, I mean, I know the owl scene uh, Mm -hmm. because it's like right there in your face. Yeah, but then like that, whatever that effect is, that is a thing that like naturally occurs like in cats as well. Right. Yeah. Depending on like light shining in their eyes and the angle of, mm-hmm. or the angle you're seeing it or whatever but i i never realized there was any kind of meaning to that yeah so it's in there for next time Millsy. <laughs> in another couple of years mm-hmm. yeah i mean this is one of those ones I, feel like I could just keep talking about it on and on so something i found interesting when i was researching this film is that uh one of the two writers of the film hampton fancher I looked to see what else he had written. Uh, the only other movie he's had a hand in writing is Blade Runner 2049. Oh, interesting. So that's kind of a weird career path. When you see something like that, like a guy is one of the two credited writers on one of the most like beloved science fiction films of all time. Mm-hmm. And then like he's done nothing else. Like, how does that happen? Yeah. How did nobody else ever come knocking and he like took a job doing some other sci-fi movie or something? Right, right. Yeah, that's a good question. And then the other guy, David Peoples, who worked on the script, uh, among other things, wrote a film we've previously reviewed on this show, which was Leviathan, mm. with Peter Weller and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Throw Fish back. Monsters. Yeah. <laughs> also wrote uh, Unforgiven and Twelve Monkeys. And oh. uh, I, don't, I don't know if he actually wrote this or if they're giving him credit because he worked on Blade Runner, but are you have you seen the... Uh, the movie Soldier. Oh, Kurt yeah. Russell. Love it. So that movie was apparently, it was like written and intended to be kind of like a not direct sequel to Blade Runner, but to like take place in the same universe. Mm-hmm. Like I that know. was the director's yeah, intention. I... Okay. And uh, David Peoples has a writing credit on that as well, apparently, huh. which is kind of interesting that he would be like another connection there. But Nice. Yeah. Uh, before I move on, I got a question. Because the for me, when coming up with this episode was all just about like the views of the future. Mm-hmm. You know, that's why like this is Back to the Future Part Two, not the first one. So this came out in eighty two, depicts twenty nineteen, so <laughs> thirty seven years in the future. Like, what do you what do you think of like the future shown? Is it you know um, just like your overall think? Because it's like some things. Of course, everyone thought they'd be flying cars, but there's not. We're not mm-hmm. even close. Um, well, it's funny when we, I mean, we can maybe get into this more when we talk about Back to the Future 2, but uh, Robert Zemeckis, when they were planning that film, uh, it took him a while to come around to the idea of going into the future with that movie because he's said in interviews that uh, he generally doesn't like movies that show the future because they're always so off base. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was concerned about making a movie that, takes place in the future where like they have all the wrong predictions. But the thing is with a movie like back to the future Two, like it's more just about like a fun adventure ride. I don't think anybody's like holding them accountable for their vision of the future. Yeah. And similarly with uh, blade runner, like you give it a year just because in 1982, it sounds so far away to imagine. Wow. Mm -hmm. 2019, like it's basically like far enough away that, you know, if they had said it was like 1987, mm-hmm. that would have been a bit much. But um, I don't know. I never hold movies to task for that no, kind of shit. I but, mean, 
the yeah. vision of the future. It like it's a thing where as you watch the movie and you think to yourself like it looks it's so like crowded and mm-hmm. like just imagine it probably like doesn't smell very good because no. it's just a lot of people on top of one another and there's so much like dilapidation and everything. It seems like kind of a shitty place to be, but I'll be goddamned if like there's not a part of me that's like, God, I would love to live in this place <laughs> yeah. just with yeah. like all these people around mm-hmm. and like all these little like noodle restaurants just lining the streets and neon lights everywhere and, yeah. you know, women doing like sexy snake dances and clubs mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. just like to live in a city where there is a building on the skyline that looks like the Tyrell Corporation. Right. And yeah. just like all the smoke, like that's a thing about Ridley Scott that I do really love is just his like attention to the environment. Like mm-hmm. he Production classically design. uses smoke and light like in his movies, even in like oh. Alien. Yeah. Takes place in outer space, but there's like so much smoke with light going through it. It just, he can create like beautiful image atmosphere yeah. with that stuff and just like when the flying police car takes off and it's just like pouring fucking smoke out of the mm-hmm, bottom of it mm-hmm. and it's catching the lights and everything and yeah just anytime there's a character who's like in a building that's like super dimly lit and you can see like a gigantic monitor on the side of a building outside yeah. with like some yeah. Asian woman's face close up smiling at you through the mm-hmm. fucking Venetian blinds. And mm-hmm. It's so cool uh, looking. There is a part it. of me that's just like, God, I would love to live there. Yeah. yeah. But at the same time, it's probably really shitty. Yeah. It's gross and grimy and just, yeah. Yeah. It's overcrowded and shitty. But, but I mean, part of that for me probably comes back to this is something I've discussed before, probably on sidetracked, but in, you know, just conversation with many people that I'm friends with that like, you know, I grew up in the middle of nowhere and still live now in the middle of nowhere. And like the small opportunities I've had to like, like when I lived in New Jersey for a couple of years while I was in school, you know, the part of New Jersey I was in wasn't like a bustling metropolis, but it was actually like in a small city. Mm-hmm. And like one year I lived like right on the other side of a parking lot from the train station and just like having non-natural light coming through my windows at night just gave me like a weird feeling of like, man, there's, it's, there's life here. And Mm -hmm. like being able to hear the drunk assholes getting off the train at 2am coming back from New York city. And Mm -hmm. just like being able to walk across the street and go get Chinese food or whatever. Like there's like a very romanticized version of like, not living in the fucking country with a cornfield on one side and a forest on the other. Like, right. Like at nighttime, there is no unnatural light here at all. Like you can see the stars, which is great because there's no, there's not like much pollution or whatever here, Mm -hmm. but the idea of living in a place like this, even if it's not like a sci-fi future, but like, you know, whatever the modern day equivalent would be like, you know, New York city or something is very romanticized to me as well. But then you add, all the neon lights and flying cars and mm-hmm. zeppelins with it's it's very appealing to yeah. me. This is just like great parts, especially at the end where you don't even know, but he's like in that dark apartment and for whatever reason there's a light from outside that's just like going back and forth, back and <laughs> forth. You know, like stuff like that I love in this movie. Yeah. Just the atmosphere. Mm-hmm. Looks so good. And another thing I like, which I pro I think I liked when I was younger, it was just all the tech bits. And as you get older, especially like when I was in high school or, you know, even when, uh, like, say, like, my Minority Report comes out and it's all, like, 
you know, uh, big giant screens and all this, you know. Everything's like controlled by moving your hands around. Yeah. Big digital and everything. Like the Iron Man effect. Yeah, Where absolutely. now, if you're a science fiction movie, fuck computer monitors. You just have holograms everywhere that you can right. swipe your right. arms around and right. do everything. Which, you know, I can, as a fan, I can like f- find stuff about that I like too. But whenever I watch like this movie or you watch Alien or Aliens, like. I still love to see just like the practical effect of like someone like built up some crazy looking like little monitor with a bunch of switches and a bunch of mm-hmm. doodads all over it or whatever. Or like the the machine they use to test the replicates. Like yeah. rather than just being like, a, OK, look at this light and then a hologram, like you said, it's like, no, there's actually like a machine with a, you know, a, an air bladder, like all types of weird <laughs> shit. Like, I love that. The- yeah, like, what's the point of that on the side of the machine? Those little things that move up and down? Like, it's Who completely knows? illogical. And as yeah. I was watching the movie, I was thinking, like, what's the point of those? But yeah. I don't really care because yeah. it looks cool. Because it's cool and it, it's movement and it adds something to it. Like, I love it. Yeah, because somebody in a workshop was told, make a design a machine mm-hmm. that you can carry around and use to test whether people are robots or not. And the guy in the, the machine shop surrounded in, like, busted up model kits and shit they found at the junkyard was just like well mm-hmm. in order to make it seem futuristic it just has to make no sense to a modern person yeah, yeah. so and i'll just throw all these things on there and this bit moves why who the hell knows who the hell knows and back in like 1980 or whenever this was being made like someone was digging through like machine shops or pawn shops or junkyards to find like random little bits to put things together and yeah the art of kit bashing yeah i mean you could put you could I mean, you could write a thesis on just Deckard's revolver from this movie and the history <laughs> of that and like how it went missing for decades, like all types of stuff. And like that's just these little bits that people have to make mm-hmm. again and again, like, you know, broken record, like that movie magic to me will will always up an experience for me like this. Always. Yeah. For sure. And it's just a thing where I continue to think to myself. Like I, I was thinking about it as I was watching this. Like, I really did enjoy Blade Runner 2049. I think that movie looks mm. cool, too. I, mm-hmm. I'm i actually in the mood to revisit it now because I just yeah, watched yeah. Big this. Time. Same here. And, uh, like, I don't recall if, like, the Tyrell building is in that movie or anything. But thinking to myself, like, man, if they make, like, a modern-day Blade Runner movie, like, how cool it would be if they just, like, made another model of the Tyrell building instead of doing it all in CG. Yeah, yeah totally. No, no doubt. Like, it's kind of ridiculous to think that anybody's ever going to make a movie quite like this again, as far as yeah. the effects and all are concerned. But it's like, we haven't lost the technology to make a movie that looks like Blade Runner anymore. Just nobody will ever do it. No. Because yeah. it's like... Because someone somewhere is going to say it's easier to just build in a computer. Yeah. Easier or cheaper, probably. Which, I don't know if that's even true, because I'm sure that shit's no. super complicated, but yeah, just... Yeah, like, it'll never happen, like I say. You get all these people who make, like, a lot of indie movies that pop up on Netflix Instant or whatever mm-hmm. uh, that look kind of crummy because they don't have the budget, but they're, like, trying to, like, that movie Turbo Kid where they tried to make a movie that looked like an old shitty post-apocalyptic film. Mm-hmm. But it's, like, they don't have the budget because... You know, it may seem like, oh, it's a lot cheaper to just like build models or whatever, but like it still takes a lot of money and talent to make that shit look good enough to make like a triple A big budget Hollywood movie like Blade Runner. And just how amazing would it be if some studio out there was like, all right, 
we spend, you know, $150 million making some crazy sci-fi movie these days. Like, let's just take all that money and put it into building oh. props and shit. Oh, and, please. like, making it all practical. Oh, please. Like, if Leica Studios can make all the fucking crazy little, like, beautiful-looking mm-hmm. props and, like, little baskets and little books and little knickknacks right. and things yeah. to make their movies, like, why can't somebody do it on the large scale? It's like, like, can they? Just the want isn't there. It's yeah, the monetary bits. Who when, knows? man, I would just love to... Like, that's the thing that I think people like you and I and the people who listen to synthwave music and the people who love 80s movies so much... Like, that's the thing that I think we're all yearning for is, like, you could make another movie just like this or Big Trouble in Little China or Star mm. Wars, the original Star Wars. You could make a movie just like it now, but no one ever will. Right. And I just can't. I I have to think that it would still be cheaper than, like, CG everything. It probably, probably would. but Probably. I mean, I'm not saying it's going to be drastically different, but. It just seems like with the amount of people and, you know, when you watch the credits on any big CG movie and the amount of people involved. Yeah. It just makes me wonder, like, so the new Blade Runner movie. Mm -hmm. um, I got to look this up really quick because now I'm curious because I have the uh, the budget for the original Blade Runner was reportedly 30 million dollars. The budget for Blade Runner 2049 with all of its CG was between 150 and 185 million dollars. Like, yeah, it's been many years since the original Blade Runner came out, but I doubt that inflation of 30 million from mm-hmm. 1982 to like three years ago when they made that yeah. movie would bring you up to 185 yeah. million. I'm so sh- like, yeah, 30 million you could in probably 82. make a movie cheaper with practical yeah. effects if you really wanted to. I want you know, don't. There's no denying that like in 1982, 30 million dollars is a lot of money. Yeah. I I just don't think it's equal to 150 or 185. That's for yeah, damn sure. Days. Maybe it's 100. Yeah. Maybe, but still, that's half of a blockbuster budget nowadays. Mm-hmm. Well, we got to start <sighs> uh, just start a writer a letter writing campaign, Mills. Yeah, that's gonna work. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody listens to the internet. Well, that's true. although that's not true because. You know, Zack Snyder cuts coming next year. Oh, oh, tell him. (laughs) (laughs) One last thing before we move on from Blade Runner. Mm -hmm. I guess two two final things. Uh, So Philip K. Dick, he died before this movie got to come out. As opposed to what I thought before, I I had thought that I had read that he had seen a final version of the movie, which is not true. Uh, he got to read the script, which he was happy with, because there was a prior version of the script. This movie, I think, had been licensed by someone before this this his book to be a movie, mm-hmm. and uh, the script was written by like the son of the person who bought the license, and Philip K. Dick hated it, and that version never got made. Oh, okay. But he read this version of the script and liked it, and was able to see a twenty minute reel of special effects that he was very impressed by before he died. So, oh, nice. It would have been interesting to hear what he thought of the film. Sure. Um, I mean, you know, this was the first movie to ever be made off of one of his stories, and now there's probably, like, close to 15 of them. Yeah. All told, but... Oh. And uh, the other thing, just because I love to read this kind of shit, is uh, other people considered for the role of Deckard. Mm. Warren Beatty. 
Uh, I actually don't see him on the list here, but okay. is that true? I have no idea. I'm just throwing that out. <laughs> um, considered for, I don't know if this is like, you know, some producers in an interview like, yeah, we all talked about this guy or if there was ever actually any discussion of these people. But among the list, pretty much any anybody who was a big name at the time, uh, Gene Hackman, Sean Connery, Jack Nicholson, Paul Newman, Clint Eastwood, Tommy Lee Jones, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Al Pacino, and Burt Reynolds. So everybody. Pretty much anybody. <laughs> okay. Burt Reynolds would have been interesting. <laughs> Very. But with the stash, I hope. Paul Newman would have been interesting in that role too, I think. Yeah. Well, I could see that too. But like Arnold Schwarzenegger? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. That's a different movie. Yeah. All right. Anything else about Blade Runner? No. I feel like we've covered plenty. Okay. Uh next up we are moving on to Back to the Future Part Two from nineteen eighty nine. You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Wait a minute, what are you doing, Doc? I need fuel. Go ahead, quick, get in the car. No, 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 look, Doc, I just got here, okay? Jennifer's here, we're gonna take the new truck for a spin. Well, bring her along. This concerns her, too. Wait a minute, Doc, what are you talking about? And what happens to us in the future? What, do we become assholes or something? Oh, no, 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 no. You, you and Jennifer both turn out fine. It's your kids, Marty. Something's got to be done about your kids. Hey, Doc, you better back up. We don't have enough road to get up to 88. Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. Hey, Marty! Marty! Marty, I wanted to show you these new matchbooks for my auto detailing I had printed up. Like the What the hell is going on here? Seen this movie many times. Indeed. Myself as well. Let's just go ahead and get it out there. Please. Back to the Future trilogy. How do you rank them? One, two, three. Same. <laughs> okay. I haven't seen three in quite a while, but I like three. I like them all. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, certainly. I mean, there's not there's no touch in the first one. Yeah, three is one of these movies that I kind of, for many years when I was younger, bought into the, uh, probably saw it once. And then bought into the, you know, the general consensus that it's garbage or it's terrible or whatever. And then at some point rewatched it and, you know, liked it. It's not it's not that bad. It is the weakest of the three. But right. Yeah, I feel like Back to the Future, the original, I can and will frequently watch that movie by itself. But I feel like if I watch two, I'm going to watch two and three. And if Mm -hmm. I'm going to watch three, I have to watch two. Like. I don't know why they yeah. feel like a package deal to me, but like the first one I'll watch all day long and not feel like, well, now I have to watch the other two. I mean, they came out like one year after the other, right? Yeah, they were filmed simultaneously and they came out six months apart. Which I feel like that did not happen a lot back then. No. Not like it does nowadays. Definitely, definitely not, no. So it does, it feels like a, it's sort of just even the way this this one ends, that's like you have to watch the second, the third one. So, mm-hmm. But yeah, like, so I like Back to the Future 2. I'll go ahead and say that, but 
honestly, my feeling has always been like the first one is on like a pedestal, like a zenith mm-hmm. that is very difficult to reach. Mm-hmm. And like, if I had to, to save the first one, I'd fucking incinerate every copy of two and three. Like, I like them. I like two, hmm. but I, I don't like it that much. Like the I first gotcha. one, like could be a standalone movie for me. Like, yeah. you know, I, I don't need the other two. Like I'm fine with the fact that they exist and I do enjoy them, but yeah, I don't know if that sounds too harsh, but I don't think so. Cause I'm probably, I mean, I think we're going to get into it, but I'm kind of there with you. Like the first one feels like an untouchable movie to a point that like what, you know, it's, I, don't know, I would never throw on something. Something's like a perfect movie, but it's like, mm-hmm. you know, I could certainly find flaws with two and three mm-hmm. for me personally, where I don't know if I guess I really want to get into it with the first one was being like extra critical, but it's just, yeah, when you say it's on a pedestal, like it's the perfect analogy, I think. Yeah. It's just first one is absolutely great. And the second two do have a feeling of that first one was good. Now we need a sequel. All right. How can we make this work? Like, right. You know, watching the second one, it's um, it's honestly got a slight bit of the vibe that I got from uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, mm. where it's like the first one, it feels like a flowing story mm. and it has like the time travel element. But like you get back to the 50s and then you stay there yeah. and it's like an adventure about having to get back to the future, as the title would say. Mm-hmm. But the second one is like just a an adventure where you're like bouncing around to different times and yeah. it's just like, there's so much going on that it, it feels a little tedious to me at times. Like I'm mm-hmm. at all times enjoying it, mm-hmm. but it's got this just like crazy rampant running around feeling that the first one didn't have. The first yeah. one I just feel like is a, a tonally better film. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's so hard not to compare them even just cause they're sequel. It's a sequel. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I like, I mean, I feel we're just getting right into it. Like, I like a lot of the story of part two, but I, I noticed more now this time around, like, even just the the reasoning for them to go to 2015, you know, because he has to save his kids, like, yeah. from like a fan of time travel, I kind of like hate that a little bit. Yeah, you know? I mean, so again, uh, in in the first movie... They put that little button on the end uh, as just as like a fun little moment to end the yeah. film, never thinking they'd ever make a sequel. Right. And then the movie was a runaway success and the studio was like, we're making another one with or without you. Do you want to be a part of this? And so Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale were like, well, we'd rather make it than have somebody else oh. come along and screw it up. I did not know that bit. Okay. Yeah. They have both been very open in their opinion that... They really, if they had known there were going to be sequels, they never would have let uh, uh, Jennifer get in the the DeLorean. Oh, wow. Yep. Again, that was just like a fun little gag at the end of the movie just to put a button on it. Like, oh, that's Mm -hmm. it. Never see another one of these again. And then Mm -hmm. they were forced to bring her along into the future. And, you know, they they already had that scene at the end of the last of the first one that said about, you know, it's your kids, Marty. Yeah. And so they had to focus it on the family and because again I, I read a bunch about this and actually I watched some of the special features on the Blu-ray when I rewatched this for the show the other day. And uh, they talked about how if they didn't have to bring Jennifer along, they probably never would have done the story that involves like the family and like going mm. back to the first movie again because they just would have gone on some other adventure. Yeah. Which 
you know, second one's good and I like it. And it's really fun mm -hmm. seeing how they go back and like play with the events of the first movie again. Yeah. Yeah. Like a movie within a movie. But uh, I could definitely be fine not doing that and just having like a different mm -hmm. adventure with Doc and Marty. Yeah. Like seeing like the stuff of like seeing, um, you know, how time has changed by the old man bringing the book back. You know, it like that's fun. Like when he when Marty goes back to alternate eighty five and you know, everything is just like spiraling out of control is all enjoyable. The whole movie's like enjoyable. But when it's like the whole thing I, I really noticed it so much watching it now where I haven't seen it in a few years, but it's like when it's all predicated on like you have to go to the future like the best way for you to save your kids in the future is for you to go to the future and intervene. You know, and pretend I, to be your son. Yeah, it's just like and if I'm just being like too much of like a pretentious like sci-fi like time travel person like it's just like i i don't love that i just don't that's i feel like it will just always bother me mm -hmm. i mean i get like this is a this is a comedy sci-fi so it's like you know i don't like hold it over the its feet over the fire because of it but it's like that'll be always be it'll always be a negative for me yeah. like i feel like you could have come up with anything else to get them to the future mm -hmm. you know like or if it even if they just had it that Marty, I have to bring you to the future to so you can see what happens with your son. And then by accident, Marty gets wrapped up in it. Mm -hmm. That makes so much more sense to me to, to have the point of it to, for Marty to step in his shoes. <laughs> you know, yeah. like just thinking of that right now seems like a better idea. Like Marty, I'm going to bring you to the future so you can see what happened. So when I bring you back to 85, you know that this is coming rather than. Yeah. yeah it makes it feel weirdly proactive because the whole thing in the first movie is he goes back in time by accident. Like he doesn't mm -hmm. Marty's not supposed to go back in time to that time period. And then he accidentally stops a future event from happening and he's already stuck there. So he's got to fix it. This right. is like I've gone to the future and observed what happens. Now we're going to go forward and purposefully change it. Like we're going to meddle in the time stream on right. purpose this time. Yeah. But then, like, even, like, bringing him back to 85 after that, could, anything could change. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, anytime we've ever talked about time travel on the show, it's like, you know, I can't stop my brain from, like, overworking these things. Not that <laughs> I even know shit about the science, but it's just, that's a thing I will dwell on in my head. Is like, not even looking for the mistakes, but just getting, like, caught up in the, I guess, the science of the time travel. So Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, a, it's fun for me. It's a fact of this kind of, like, sci-fi genre that, like, no. it's going to make you think about that shit. Right. Like, it's, it's almost unstoppable. Yeah, so it's like, well, everything that happens after that is great and enjoyable and everything, but it's, well, it just starts out like that. It always just, like, kind of leaves me sore a little. Mm-hmm. You know, and him going to 85 again, alternate 85 is fun, and like you said, like, watching the 55 stuff from a different point of view is like fun and you know fun, really funny at times yeah, it's almost more impressive than anything just the way that they managed to yeah. do it and yeah you know with those special features i was watching they were talking all about how they in had to invent these new vista glide computer controlled cameras because you know the whole idea of having one person play the same character like in like two people on the same screen Mm -hmm. had been done many, many times previous, but they wanted to have like the dynamic camera that you would expect from like a big blockbuster like this and not have like every time Marty's on the screen with himself, the camera's just sitting completely still so they don't fuck anything up. 
Mm-hmm. They had to like uh, Industrial Light and Magic invented these new camera rigs so that they could do mm. that stuff, cool. which is like really cool. And I feel like you notice it watching the movie just how the camera is always moving, and it doesn't feel like they um, sacrificed any style to get shots like that. No, which is no, cool. That's a good point. But the future stuff is kind of fun, just in like a cartoony way. Yeah. A lot of it's like dated, you know, like you were saying before, like, well, it's like an eighties version of the future. So right. everything is like brightly colored, crazy outfits mm-hmm. and skateboards, like and hoverboards like the, and like stuff. And the pixelated 3d, you know, like, yeah, of the, it's, but it's fun to see, you know, it fits because yeah. it's comedy. I mean, it's largely jokes like the, uh, the shoes that tie themselves and the jacket mm-hmm. that can air dry itself yeah. and the, the pizza that's tiny and it cooks in three seconds and all that stuff is like, mm-hmm. It's fun, it, you know, not something I take too seriously. Right. And then the alternate 1985 stuff is cool. I like the whole Biff Tower and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then going back into the 1955, again, stuff is just really impressive. So it's like, you know, I, I like the whole thing, but mm-hmm. um, it definitely does just feel lesser than when I watch it, like yeah. knowing that it's the sequel to the first movie. Mm-hmm. Good point. I mean, you know, uh, whatever the guy's name that plays Biff. Actually, I don't even know his name. Thomas Wilson. Thomas Wilson. Is he, is he like a second lead on this movie? Because he's in it so much. He's in it a ton. Uh, and he plays multiple different characters and versions of himself. Mm-hmm. I don't think so. I think it's still like Marty and the Doc top build yeah. all the time. I almost like forget like, damn, like Biff is in it. The versions of Biff are all over this movie. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, he's Biff fucking Tannen. He's like a huge character in like one of the biggest, most beloved blockbuster, you know, adventure family films of all time. And I'm like, what the fuck else has that guy done? If you look him up on IMDb, he's got like close to 200 credits. The vast majority of them are uh, like movies you've never heard of, like weird small like direct-to-video kind of stuff and then he does a lot of like voice work mm. nowadays mm-hmm. uh and i remember a while back like years ago now i was like looking up like whatever happened to biff and he i guess he does tours doing like a comedy music routine have you ever seen any of this stuff no god no he's got one song that he's mostly known for because it references back to the future it's mm-hmm. called i think it's called stop asking the question <laughs> And it's it's a whole song about, you know, people see him and they don't care about him. They want to ask, like, all these questions about Back to the Future. And it's about him being like, oh, well, I'm annoyed that you everybody asks, like, what's Michael J. Fox like? And what's mm-hmm. Christopher Lloyd like? And do you guys hang out still and all this stuff? So, like, watching this and doing the, uh, you know, all the research for the show, I went to YouTube and I was like, I, I remember that song being kind of funny. I'd like to watch it again. And, like, now he's known for that, so there are, like, 70 different videos of him performing that on, like, different radio shows and television appearances and live shows now. It's like... Good Lord. Yeah, that's that guy's bread and butter is a fucking song about how annoyed he is that people only ask him about Back to the Future. (laughs) Oh, well. He's still working. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty wild because he's, like, such a big part of this. Yeah. I mean, he's really good as the character. I mean, I guess it's possible that he's just, like, only good in this over-the-top villain role or something, but I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Well, he plays it well. 
Yeah, I mean, he is very over the top. That's that's like my biggest takeaway from watching this again this time is how fucking cartoony this movie is. Mm-hmm. Like this feels like, you know, if you watch Ghostbusters, that's a comedy film, but still takes itself kind of seriously. And then like they turned it into a cartoon series where all the characters are wearing like brightly colored costumes and running around and like wacky adventures. Mm-hmm. That's what this feels like. Back to the Future Two feels like a cartoon, like a Saturday morning cartoon adaptation of the first movie or something. Yeah, because yeah. it's just so bananas and off the wall and right. It's like uh, you know, Doc's outfit from the future, and then even like when they go to Marty's house and like twenty fifteen Marty is older and he's got like the double tie, which I had yeah. never noticed before. I don't know if you did. Mm-hmm. Uh, like just re- like that. It's like very cartoony. Like that's like the over. Some of it's very over the top. Yeah, and I mean, obviously the future stuff and the alternate nineteen fifty or nineteen eighty five stuff is very cartoony, just because of the way the you know Biff has taken things over mm-hmm. with like the Biff Museum and everything. But right. yeah, I mean Biff himself is just he's he's like a parody of a certain kind of character in the first movie. But in this one, he is full on shot out of a cannon cartoon character <laughs> mm-hmm. all the time. Just like the way he's constantly just like, McFly, you know, the right. the facial expressions and shit. They just told him to go bananas yeah, in this movie. And he does. Yeah, he really does. But he is a lot of fun mm-hmm. throughout the movie. The, another thing that I found interesting watching it again this time is the realization of like, you know, this movie did come out four years after the first one, I think. And... In that time, you know, over those four years, Back to the Future, people were probably like saw it multiple times in the theater. I don't know if it was playing on TV yet. And like they probably had VHS tapes and watched it over and over again. But by the time the second one comes out a mere four years later, it's like they had already built up this just like huge world of like things that they can reference and do over again. Like the manure and like Biff's shitty lines and like the fact that doc says great Scott every three seconds in this Mm -hmm. movie. And Mm -hmm. it's just funny to see, like you'd imagine a movie would come out and be very popular. And then like 20 years later, they do a new one and they're like quoting all the lines and stuff. But this is like a couple years later and they're already playing off their own oeuvre, which is hilarious. Yeah. Just goes to show how big, big of a thing it was. Yeah, so the the Crispin Glover thing, I'm sure you know mm. all about this. I don't remember the particulars. I know I've looked into it before. Yeah, so originally George McFly was a much bigger part of the movie and uh you know, everybody basically agreed to come back, but then Crispin Glover uh, from what I read, the studio offered him $125,000 to come back and play the character, but he claims that that was less than half of what all the other returning actors were getting whether or not you believe him i don't know mm-hmm. but so he was like holding out for more money and then bob gale was basically like all right well you know you don't want to you don't want to come to our terms we'll just we just won't use you so they rewrote the script to kill george in the future so that like that whole plot line with him is now cut out of the movie but they had to have him a couple of times in there because the whole thing is, you know, you're reliving stuff from the first movie and it's like so tied into this certain family and like these people who need to be recognizable, uh, even though, you know, uh, Jennifer is a different actress as well. Mm-hmm. But um, so they had this guy, Jeffrey Weissman, 
played George in the couple scenes you see him in, and they gave him like prosthetic stuff, like a nose and a a chin to make him look more like Crispin Glover. And uh, they did stuff like keep him in the background or that scene where he's hanging upside down from that floating contraption because it makes it harder to recognize that it's not the same person. And uh, Crispin Glover sued the studio basically saying like, hey, I didn't agree to be in the movie and you guys do not own my likeness. So like you can't just put me in a movie that I didn't agree to be in. And uh, it went to court and then they actually settled out of court for allegedly $765,000. That's crazy. So it didn't actually make it through the court proceedings, but uh, there were actually some clauses added to the, the Screen Actors Guild basically saying like you're not allowed to just like hijack an actor's likeness for a movie like this anymore. Oh, wow. So it actually had like lasting effects on the industry down to the fact that I know, like I remember uh, hearing, it was probably in the special features for alien three when, when Michael Bean heard that they were going to be doing another alien movie and he had survived the second one, he was like, Oh, awesome. I'm going to get to be in another alien film. And then uh, they didn't want him to be in it. They wanted to, uh, bring him in to do like a body cast of his upper body for his corpse. Yeah. For his corpse. And he was like, fuck no, I'm not going to do that. Mm -hmm. And like, wouldn't let them use his likeness. The only thing that I guess he uh, agreed to or had to let them use was a stock photo of him Mm -hmm. on like a computer screen Mm -hmm. because he was like, if you're not going to put me in the movie, I'm not coming in there just to let you use my image. Right. And probably because of back to the future, they even had to ask him. That's awesome. Which is interesting. Yeah. I mean, it actually makes sense. Yeah. You know, if you want to recast George McFly, okay, but don't, yeah, don't try to pass him off as trick everyone. That makes sense. Yeah. It's just hindsight being 2020. I mean, if let's say the 125 was half of what everybody else got paid, if they had just paid him, you know, $250,000, they could have saved themselves like 500,000 more from the court case. Good for him. You know, who knew? Yeah, pretty wild. And yeah, the uh, the Jennifer thing, this is nuts. Like, Elizabeth Shue had been on some TV shows, mm-hmm. uh, not like long-lasting characters or anything, but she had been on a couple of different shows. Uh, and then she did Back to the Future, which was her first film. Elizabeth Shue? Yeah. She or, was or in no, the sorry, uh, um, Chris, Claudia Wells was, okay. yeah, so she did some TV. She did the first Back to the Future. Uh, it was a huge hit. And then right after that, her mother got sick, so she basically left the industry. Oh. And they replaced her with Elizabeth Shue. But, man, like, what could Claudia Wells' career have been if she hadn't Mm. left the industry? Imagine. Because she did, you know, she was gone for a long time. She finally resurfaced and started doing a little bit of acting in 2008. But, like, all, like, either Back to the Future related stuff. 20 years later. Yeah, shit that, like, you've never heard of. Mm -hmm. That's wild. So Elizabeth Shue steps in, and then you feel kind of bad for Elizabeth Shue because rather than really try to find a way to incorporate Jennifer into the plot, it's so weird that they bring her to the future and then just knock her out. And then they leave her on a porch in 1985, like in crazy, militaristic, Mm -hmm. horrible 1985. Mm -hmm. They just leave her on a a fucking swing. And you don't even see her again. Yeah. Doc has a line about how, like, oh, it'll be fine when... Uh, the world will change around her when like we set things right. It's, mm-hmm. just, it's, it's very weird. And it just, just, I don't know, it feels kind of shitty for her character. Yeah. I mean, she's got like the one scene in the 2015 McFly house. 
Yeah. That's like the one extended bit. But then otherwise she's left in a pile of trash or left on sketchy <laughs> porch. So Yeah. So uh the original Back to the Future cost nineteen million and made three hundred eighty nine point one in the box Boy. office, which is pretty fucking oh, good. Lord. For the time. Because I don't think I mentioned, but uh, Blade Runner in 1982 cost 30 million and only made like 41 million in the box Ooh, office. Ouch! So Back to the Future Two uh, cost 40 million, so twice what the first one did, and it made a little less, 335.9. Huh. But then uh, Back to the Future Three also cost 40 mil, which is double what the first one cost, only made 246.1. Oh. I mean, that's still a fucking lot of money. I'm sure they weren't too upset yeah, about it. Huge but. return on investment, but they don't look at it like that. They always think it's, they want everything to make more and more and more. Yeah. But it is wild to think that, you know, the first Back to the Future cost $20 million to make. And then when they did two and three, they agreed ahead of time to film them back to back for a cumulative $80 million mm-hmm. in the late 80s, early 90s. Yeah. It's pretty wild. Uh, first on-screen appearance in a movie of Elijah Wood. <laughs> yeah, I was didn't one of the know, happened kids. to notice that at random. Mm-hmm. The return of Flea as Needles. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> a quick shot. Billy Zane in there. Completely forgot that was Billy Zane. Yeah, Billy Zane. It's one of the one of Biff's gang as well. Mm-hmm. So it's a good movie. Solid mm-hmm. movie. Yeah, but. agreed. But if it came down to it, I'd launch it into the sun to save the yeah. first one. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'd have to be like. Right behind you, being like, yeah, Millsy, do it. And you're going to be like, oh, I don't know, should I do this? And I'd be like, yes. <laughs> what, you re- realize what you're saving here. And you're like, you were, you were right. Yeah, I wouldn't think twice if I was saving the first one, honestly. Yeah. But, you know, two is what it is. It's fine. Mm-hmm. I like it. Mm-hmm. So, time to move on to our third film? Please. All right, finally, from 1993, we have Demolition Man. Any new inframa on Simon Phoenix? There is nothing, Lenina Huxley. Where's your John Spark? Oh, he went to the bathroom. I, I guess he got all thought out. Oh. Sir, I formally convey my presence. How you doing? We are not used to physical contact greetings. Germs. Look, I don't know if you guys know it, but you're, uh, you're out of toilet paper. Did, did you say toilet paper? Oh. They used handfuls of wadded paper back in the 20s. <laughs> I'm happy that you're happy, but the place where you're supposed to have the toilet paper, you got this little shelf with three seashells on it. <laughs> he doesn't know how to use the three seashells. <laughs> I can see how that could be confusing. I don't believe it. Is that you, Spartan? No. Zach? Zach Lamb? <laughs> what happened to you? <laughs> I got older. My God. I remember when you were a snot-nosed rookie pilot. They finally grounded me. Shit. You're a damn good flyer. You are fined two credits for a violation of the statute. I'll be right back. They seem to be friends. Yet he speaks to him in the most profane manner. Well, if you had read my study, you would know that this is how insecure heterosexual males used to bond. I knew that. Thanks a lot, you shit. Not 
You know, the more I thought about it when I was watching it this time, this might have only been the second time I've ever seen this movie. Stop it. Yeah, it wasn't like a standby for me when I was younger or anything. I think I bought it used at a record store years and years ago. Like maybe when I was in high school, watched it once, and then the DVD just sat on my shelf. Really? And at some point, I upgraded it to Blu-ray, so I do have the Blu-ray. But if not the the second, this is maybe the third time I've seen it. Hands down, not with wouldn't even think twice about. I've seen Demolition Man more than probably the other two combined. Really? (laughs) Yeah. Wow. Demolition Man, heavy rotation in the Daxberger household. Somebody needs to make a fucking briefcase edition of Demolition Man (laughs) for this boy. I mean, heavy rotation. I mean, I've probably talked about it before. My mother loved Stallone, and (laughs) she loved the the Rocky movies, especially Rocky IV. (laughs) So, (laughs) like, any Stallone movie was certainly getting watched at many times over. Yeah. And I mean, I could have seen this. I don't know for sure because I would have been 11. I I don't know for sure if I saw this in the theater, but if I was watching this regularly once it was out on video. Yeah, I would put money on I didn't see this until I was in high school. Wow. I'm surprised by that. But yeah, I mean, we might have discussed this before uh on the show. I I I definitely have talked about this off the show. Uh but you know, growing up, I was a Schwarzenegger kid over over all others, uh, behind that Jackie Chan, mm-hmm. and then behind that in third place, I guess, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Like, I was not a big Stallone kid. Uh, didn't see the Rambo movies until much later. Did not see the Rocky movies until uh, I, the last 20 years, most mm-hmm. of them. Hmm. And like I watched Daylight as a kid, I had that on VHS of all things. Yeah, I've seen I've seen Daylight once, but yeah, it wasn't a big, uh, wasn't a huge Stallone guy for whatever reason. I just hadn't seen most of his movies. So yeah, this is one that like I didn't track down back in 1993. Huh. All right, all right, for whatever reason, but uh, yeah. No, so see. I didn't have this one committed to memory like I imagine you did. Oh yeah. I'm I'm uh, well versed in Demolition Man. Nelsie, what do you think of Demolition Man? I like it. I think it's a good bit of fun. I thought to myself as I was watching it that it felt it felt a little choppy at times, mm-hmm. and I confirmed that for myself reading about the movie after the fact. They took the axe to this thing in the editing room. Oh, because what I read is that the original runtime was over two hours, which the studio was not a fan of. So they brought in a separate editor from the guy who had been working on the movie up to that point named Stuart Baird to cut it down. And he apparently removed scenes of extra violence, a subplot where we actually meet Spartan's daughter who lives in the sewers with uh, Dennis Leary's character. Okay. And uh, a bunch more action at the end, including apparently like a a one-on-one fight scene between Stallone and Jesse Ventura. Oh, what the hell? Yeah, so apparently, because um, you know when, uh, when uh, what's his name, Simon Phoenix, Wesley Snipes' character, when he requests that some of his like old fellow mm-hmm. villain buddies from back in the day get unfrozen, 
there's a scene where you see like six or eight of them sitting around a table, like all making plans for what they're going to do. Yep. And then a lot of them you barely ever see again. But there was apparently a sequence at the end originally when Stallone goes to the cryogenics lab where the final action takes place, where he was going to like fight all those other guys and they filmed it all and then oh, they God. chopped it from the movie. God damn it, that's got to be out there, Millsy. I got to see it. I know. We need like a we need Shout Factory to put out a, a <laughs> Blu-ray of this with like deleted scenes or something. So Apparently I'm a Demolition Man super fan too. <laughs> so yeah, it um like I enjoy it. I think it's fun. I like the concept. I like the tone of it. Mm-hmm. But um it does feel like like the third act feels kind of rushed. It does for sure. But once they get to the the cryogenic facility, it's very fast. Yeah. It just Especially. it feels like it ends so quickly at that point. Oh yeah. Like I think the setup is good. I like, you know, this one obviously is a little more in that back to the future realm where it's like taking a, you know, poking at society and like making oh, yeah. a jokey version of the future. Mm-hmm. The three seashells, Taco Bell winning the franchise wars, yeah. which I'd like to see an entire like documentary <laughs> about the franchise wars and how that went down. But right. Like, I like all that stuff. I like the world it takes place in. I like the Mm -hmm. everything is, like, perfectly shiny stainless steel in the cryogenics lab and everything. Mm -hmm. Like, I like the look of everything. Yeah. That, uh, it's funny, the show tune or the commercials are all the biggest Mm -hmm. hits nowadays. Yeah, I like all those ideas. Yeah, everyone dresses kind of like a bit of, like, an Eastern vibe, I guess. You know, like all of the world building, I think, mm-hmm. is great and fun, yeah. and mm-hmm. I think Stallone is really good in the role with like some lighthearted stuff. Yeah, and, it's like a good, know. decent fish out of water. Like it's mm-hmm. it's missing parts where he's like really getting accustomed to things. It's got a couple bits here and there, but yeah, there's like never the, like a existential bit where he's been frozen for forty years. You know. Mm-hmm. But yeah, just like you know, he mentions his daughter a couple times, and then they never do anything with it, which feels weird. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. because there was like apparently there is a shot of him protecting a girl, like from an explosion that's still in the movie when they're in the sewers, oh. and that was the daughter. But they cut, and then like, you see her in the crowd of like sewer dwellers who all show up at the police station at the very end. That's hilarious. But, like yeah, they cut her out of the movie otherwise. Oh. But, like, it feels like that's missing. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Wesley Snipes has that meeting with all of his newly unfrozen bad guy buddies. And he's talking about, like, go out and do what you do best, like rob and loot and all this stuff. And then you never see them do any of it. It's like as soon as that scene's over, we basically cut to the car chase that leads to the police station and it's over. Like, it feels like uh, Snipes should have gotten those guys unfrozen, like, halfway through the movie instead of. 15, 20 minutes from the end yeah. or something. Yeah, no. Um, it just point. feels like a lot of setup and then a very quick payoff. So the movie feels a little oddly paced Stunted. and chopped up yeah. to me. But mm-hmm. like the first two thirds, I really like. Yeah. I think like the tone of it is like nearly perfect mm-hmm. to fit in like the action kind of comedic like vibe. Yeah. It leans on humor a little more than most action movies, but mm-hmm. I like that feeling. Me too. I found myself, I've probably been every time I've ever seen it, but especially this time, I haven't seen it in quite a while, but I just like laugh every time. Not not when they first introduce like the the fines for swearing, but like mm-hmm. later on in the movie, like you'll almost like not notice someone has swore 
has swore, but then in the background, faintly, you hear yeah. the machine go off. I noticed that too. I was acutely aware of it because I was like, this is like an annoying thing for them to probably have to keep on doing in the (laughs) movie, but they do it. Oh yeah, they do it. Like to me, that's like one of the funnest parts of it. It's just like, oh, it's so funny when you just like ever so faintly hear it go off in the background. Mm -hmm. Oh, I was dying watching it. And it feels like, like if there was anything is because this movie isn't one that I feel the general populace has like fond memories of. But if there's any one thing that I feel like still exists in the popular culture, like oh, three, popular knowledge base, it's the three seashells. Three seashells all day. Which yeah. is funny. But honestly, I think the funniest thing about the three seashells is the scene where he goes over to the wall and curses a bunch of times and then mm-hmm. takes all the receipts <laughs> right. to use his toilet paper. Oh, yeah. I think that's a brilliant idea. Yeah, big time. It's like they introduce it for that and then that's enough. And then the rest of the little bits they do is so funny. Mm-hmm. Um, and then solid action throughout. Yeah. Again, I just wish there was more of it. Like oh, at of course. The end. But for what we get, you know, like the hand-to-hand bits, I love uh, Wesley Snipes in this as a villain. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I noticed, especially this time, that I don't think I ever noticed before, is he's like heavy with the one-liners. Mm-hmm. Um, which is a thing I never really noticed before. That doesn't. That's not. That's not really like detrimental, but it kind I of. Like it. I, I like it. I like how over the top he is. It fits the tone. Yeah, yeah. It, it just him over the top period, but yeah, even him like with his new prison skills and like making him like a, you know, a, a super convict. Like I mm-hmm. love all that. You know, I love the scene in the museum where he's like, you know, trying to figure out the futuristic laser gun thing. Mm-hmm. Like I thought all that was good and him oh, basically yeah. shopping for guns and yeah. that stuff was good. Um, did you know that specifically Simon Phoenix is the inspiration for Dennis Rodman's look like in real life? Not even a little. No. I never would have guessed that, but like apparently Wesley Snipes hated his hair in this movie to the point where as soon as he was done filming, he shaved it all off. Mm-hmm. But Apparently, from what I was reading in a couple different places, I saw trivia that said that Dennis Rodman was inspired by Simon Phoenix's crazy hairdo in the movie, and that's why he went on to like dye his hair all manner of crazy fucking colors I love over that. the course of his popularity. That's great. I mean, he's got. I mean, Wesley's night like looks great as the part. The hair. He's got the, like the one blue eye. Mm-hmm. You know, stuff like that. Even his getup, his overalls. Like, I love the. Oh, whole- I love the look. Like. He's wearing that like orange t-shirt, but then mm-hmm. like when he shows up with the futuristic like post-apocalyptic armor all over him. Yep. It, I thought he looked awesome in the movie. Yeah. Yeah, he makes a good bad guy in this. Yeah, he really does. Let's him kind of fly off the handle a little bit, like mm-hmm. with the ridiculousness and the humor. Yeah. Cause like I've always liked him as Blade, but he's kind of just he's very he's sour. Yeah. But in this, I don't know, it was fun watching Wesley Snipes just like smiling ear to ear all the time mm-hmm. and cracking yeah. wise right blowing up police cars and mm-hmm. <laughs> you know generally just beating people up but yeah it's great yeah sandra bullock it feels mm-hmm. like because of the kind of character she's playing she doesn't get a lot of heavy lifting to do but you know she's fine this was early for her wasn't it uh yeah i believe so pretty this sure this was, was one of her like first big breaks because this was mm-hmm. before speed yeah it was the next year was speed so this might have been the big one uh, did you know that she was not originally cast in the role? No, sir, I did not. They filmed a couple of days with Lori Petty in oh, the role. Boy. 
tank girl so and apparently mm-hmm. she uh had like creative differences i think i read with the producer mm-hmm. joel silver mm-hmm. so she left the movie and they brought in sandra bullock yeah. i mean we all know you're a big fan of sandra bullock nothing wrong with sandy no i think she's great in this i mean yeah, I guess she's like she's got a couple bits of kicking some ass, and she's got some good jokes. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I wouldn't shortchange her on this one myself. I think uh, she adds to it for sure. Do you know who the first stars that they went after to play uh, Simon Phoenix and John Spartan were? I don't. Schwarzenegger and Lawrence Fishburne. <laughs> no. Uh, you're close, but, um, so originally they wanted Jean-Claude Van Damme to play Simon Phoenix and your boy, Steven Seagal to play (gasps) John Spartan. Oh, the alternate universe of that movie. I would love to see. (laughs) And, uh, I know that I read that Van Damme didn't want to play a villain. He, Mm -hmm. he wanted to be a hero. So he turned it down. I don't remember Steven Seagal's reasoning, but with that guy's attitude, who the God, hell knows? Vastly different movie. Yeah. So then they got Stallone on board, and then Stallone, because he's friends with him in real life, wanted and tried desperately to get Jackie Chan to take the role of <sighs> Simon Phoenix. I didn't know they were buddies. Yeah, apparently they're pretty good friends, which is why I'm surprised Jackie Chan never agreed to do Expendables. Expendables, yeah. But I think at the time Chan said that like he wanted to be like the star of a film and not like part of an ensemble. Gotcha. But uh, the reason that Jackie Chan turned down Simon Phoenix is because apparently there's like a cultural thing in in China where people don't want to see good guy like typical good guys play bad guys in movies or something uh, so he thought it would hurt his it's like a faux pas for them yeah he, th- he thought it would like hurt his bankability in his home country oh so right. that's a cultural thing i get it yeah so he turned it down oh huh. all right and uh another fun tidbit i read is that uh apparently taco bell is not very big outside of the u.s so for all the european versions of the film they substituted in pizza hut okay so they actually like superimposed Pizza Hut signage, and then That's they funny. dubbed in like Pizza Hut in lines instead oh, of really? Taco Bell. That's funny. Yeah, and that's yeah. I think that's like a, that's held on in the movie culture as like the taco. Every restaurant is Taco Bell. I feel like I've heard that plenty of times over the years yeah. too. Man, and it makes me uh, it makes me sad that I missed this. But on the when is this movie supposed to take place? 2032 i think 2032 maybe it was for like the 25th anniversary of the film then there was a taco bell in san diego that during the san diego comic con they like remodeled it to look like the taco bell of this movie like a fancy restaurant i would have loved to have gone to that (laughs) yeah it came out in 93 it was the beginning of it was 96 and then it was 2032 yeah. Now, see, that's an instance of what we were talking about earlier. Like, this movie came out in 1993, and they were showing that three years later, Los Angeles was basically a war zone. Yeah. And which, they were already freezing uh, Yeah, they were, they were cryogenically freezing people. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, I don't mind, but it is weird to think, like, why they would do the timing that way. Just that it's really just there for the cryogenic part, really. Mm-hmm. That's the only reason. But speaking of that opening sequence uh, in, you know, quote unquote, modern day in 1996, that was not originally in the script. Uh, Fred Decker, who 
wrote and directed Night of the Creeps and the Monster Squad. Mm-hmm. He did an uncredited rewrite on the movie, and he's the one who had the idea of adding the opening scene. Because apparently the original script just opens, or like at the beginning of the film, it opens with um, Stallone being unfrozen. But That's weird. Yeah, I mean, it totally makes sense to have the scene to set everything yeah, absolutely. up. Absolutely, yeah. Because yeah. you have to, you have to get like the, the bit where Simon Phoenix tells him later that the the bus people, the people on the bus were already dead. Because that's why he, it makes him even worse that Stallone goes to prison. Mm-hmm. You know, so huh? That's wild. Director of this film, Marco Brambilla. Do you recognize that name? No, sir. Good, you shouldn't, because the only other thing he's ever really made is excess baggage. <laughs> Yikes. With, I think, was that Elisa Silverstone? I don't even know. Yeah, he's made uh, one or two other things, but, like, the only things I recognized were this and Excess Baggage. And I think he directed some episodes of the old TV show Dinotopia. <laughs> That's about <laughs> it. Wow. <laughs> Man, I was, before tonight, I was I was sure far and away that Demolition Man was much beloved, and uh, everyone involved went on to uh, bigger and brighter things. Yeah, I mean, so the movie, I couldn't pin down exactly what the budget was, but uh, from what I read, it cost between 45 and $77 million to make. Mm, I'd like difference. to think it was 45 and the 77 comes from uh, advertising at the time, maybe, because I feel like 45 is much more in line yeah. with a movie from this time period. Did well at the box office, one hundred and fifty nine point one million. Oh, so that's pretty okay. good. Yeah, but I do get the impression that this is a movie that most people have all but forgotten, aside from the three yeah. seashells joke. Like it's not a well beloved like action masterpiece to you people. Know, now that I think about it, I think I was just positive you were a fan of this because didn't I get you a Simon Phoenix enamel pin for Christmas once? You did, which I like, yeah. and I mean, sure. I like the movie, but I, I cannot claim to have no, ever been like no. a super fan. I get you, but I think f- just for me and my brain, like people our age, I just assume everyone like grew up on Demolition <laughs> Man, I guess. Yeah, I definitely didn't grow up on it, but um, you know, well, I don't mind funny. me a Simon Phoenix pen. Oh, of course. It's a great pen, so. Yeah, so uh, something else that I learned uh, reading about some of the people involved with this movie uh, this film had three primary writers. Now, this blew my mind the other night when I read this because I had no idea. So, you've seen Universal Soldier. Mm-hmm. Have you seen Universal Soldier The Return? Okay, which one is that? Van Damme and uh, Goldberg is in it. Yes. That's the second one. Yes, I have. That's the only like sequel I've seen. So then in recent memory, well, more recent memory, last 10 years, there have been two more Universal Soldier sequels, mm-hmm. um, which are much more like down and dirty and have like MMA fighters in them as actors. Uh, I don't remember the subtitles of them, but the first one I really liked and the second one I fucking hated. Mm, okay. But anyway, up until two days ago when I was reading about this, I would have gone on Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. And if they asked a question, how many Universal Soldier movies have there been? And the answers were like one, two, four, or six. I would have said four, final answer, no doubt. Hmm. I would have lost the million dollars. Six? (laughs) Because it turns out uh, one of the writers of this movie is a guy named Peter M. Lenkow. And in addition to writing Son-in-Law with Pauly Shore, uh, he also was the writer of Universal Soldier 2, Brothers in Arms, 
and Universal Soldier 3 Unfinished Business, which were made-for-TV Universal Soldier sequels in the 90s. Ouch. That were completely disregarded by Universal Soldier The Return when Van Damme came back to do that second theatrical film. Brutal. And that blew my fucking mind. Like, my new goal in life is to see Universal Soldier 2 and 3 for the made-for-TV movies. I like it. I want to see them so bad now. <laughs> let, let me jot that down for our made-for-TV episode. <laughs> Do it. Mm. But yeah, I thought that was I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, that's good. So yeah, all told, um, Demolition Man, I like it, but yeah, it does not jump to mind when I think of like favorite action movies or beloved action movies. It's a it's a fun time, but I almost enjoy like the goofiness of it more than the action. Yeah, I mean, I should probably agree with that myself. Whereas, like, most of the movies that I think of when I think of, like, my favorite action films are, like, man, Police Story because of the, the mall fight scene at the end. Or Terminator mm-hmm. 2 because of, like, the uh, the chase scene with the truck and the motorcycle. And when yeah. I think of Demolition Man, I think of Taco Bell, the three seashells, and uh, fucking Rob Schneider. <laughs> who is uncredited in this movie, oh, yeah. on, ob- uh, oddly enough. And yeah. He's only in like two scenes. Like he disappears from the film really early. Yeah. Got a couple lines. That's it. Yeah. For some reason I had it in my head because he's one of the things I remember most about it that he was in it more, but I guess not. Any other uh, thoughts on Demolition Hmm. Man before we wrap her up? Um, I can dig it. Let's move it on. (laughs) Okay. Poster time. All right. First up we have Blade Runner. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, uh, do you know who the artist of this is? It's not, um... It's not Drew Struzan. Yeah, it looks... It doesn't look really Drew Struzan-y. No. It wants... it. You know, he did a version that they didn't pick. Really? Yeah, that ended up being, like, uh... I think used for the director's cut. There's, like, a pretty famous Drew Struzan Blade Runner piece of art. That I was imagine like, I'd recognize it if I saw it. I have a gigantic Drew Struzan book on my shelf yeah. over there, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. You would, without a doubt. He did like a comp of that to get this gig, and they passed on it and went with this one. Mm-hmm. And then for, I think, the director's cut release or some release, he did like he a finished version of that comp he did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this man has man has made his match. Now it's his problem, <laughs> which is... Yeah, that sounds like a very Hollywood line that doesn't really fit tonally with the movie. I got to tell you, that tiny little tagline up in the corner there feels so out of place and unnecessary. Yeah, Yeah. well, that feels like, no, we got to put something in there. Like, I know we put in a voiceover. We need something on the poster. (laughs) That's the that's the movie poster version of a voiceover narration. Totally. Yeah, I mean, I like this poster. It's not like my favorite poster in the world, but it's a lovely piece of artwork. Mm hmm. You got like that Venetian blind effect I was talking about next to Harrison Ford. Oh, yeah. You got some of that uh, patented Ridley Scott smoke effect with the smoke from her cigarette. Sure. Futuristic city, flying car. Yeah. It's got like one of the bases covered. I feel it just feels like it, you know, maybe it's just me knowing the Drew Strews piece so well that I'm just like, ugh, I wish it was that instead of this. Really? Is it that much better? I think so. Yeah. Hmm. I mean, the, this. The likeness is spot on where this one is like close, but mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it's fine. This I'm not going to trash this that hard, but there are better versions out there in the world. I'm looking at the uh, Drew Struzan one right now. It's very Drew Struzan. For sure. 
Mm, I don't know. I got to be honest. I think I like the theatrical poster better than the Drew Struzan one. Wow. I mean, the Drew Struzan one feels very much just, here's the heads of every person in the movie, Mm -hmm. where there are two headshots on the, the one that we're discussing, but more of like the cityscape and the car and everything. Yeah. And I mean, like, I don't, I don't love this angle on the cityscape. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, again, it, like I said, it's not my favorite poster in the world. It could be improved, yeah, but I'm, just, I'm saying like why I would still pick Struzan over this one. It's just yeah. the elements from each. I just prefer that one that much more. The Drew Struzan one to me feels like I'm now doing a poster after the fact for a beloved movie. So I have to put every recognizable face on it. <laughs> like it feels like an obligation to me. It's still an amazing painting and Drew Struzan is fucking fantastic, but. I, it's less the like this the actual mm. artwork itself and more the layout that I think I'm just not blown away by. <laughs> Blade Runner will just be the one we we can't agree on anything about, and I'm okay with that. Yeah, I mean, it's got to be something. It might as well be Blade Runner. <laughs> right. So then we have Back to the Future 2. Mm-hmm. Actual Drew Struzan. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I mean, as like a triptych, if or at least like a series of posters, I mean... How perfect and ingenious are the Back to the Future one, yeah, two, and yeah. three posters? Fantastic. Change yeah. change just the bits you need to change, which is like the configuration of the car and the outfits. Add some characters. It's like sold. Perfect. Yeah. I mean, again, the Back to the Future one poster is just like the perfect poster for that movie. Mm-hmm. And it's just like a fantastic piece of art. And uh, yeah, just playing off of it like this with Doc and his futuristic outfit and everything is a mm-hmm. great idea. Yeah. I love it. It's a masterpiece. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> it does have a tagline. Getting back was only the beginning, which I don't yeah. mind, but really yeah. doesn't feel like it needs to be up there. No. Admittedly, if I had to critique anything about this, uh, I would get rid of Michael J. Fox oh, and Christopher Lloyd's names. I was going to say that. Yeah. And the tagline and just have the Back to the Future logo big across the top. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's too much. It's, I guess Spielberg, Zemeckis, Fox, and Lloyd all at the top. Yeah. I it's mean, excessive. if nothing else, you could put all those names bigger at the bottom, but like up there in right. the corner and then yeah. you squeeze the Back to the Future logo over into the corner too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, I'm with you. That's what I'd change, but. Yeah. I mean, Back to the Future is a great logo too. Yeah. Classic. Fucking A it is. You just don't see logos like that recognizable no. and specific and in your face oh, most never. of the time. Never. Like I was thinking when we were looking at the Blade Runner poster, like that's a cool logo, mm-hmm. but like. That's a cool logo. The Back yeah. to the Future logo is like, that's a fucking logo. This is like iconic. Yeah, the color scheme, the arrows, the sizing yeah. of the words and everything. Mm-hmm. So good. And then Demolition Man. Mm. This is just like a, an afternoon thrown <laughs> together. <laughs> yeah. I don't even know why there's like the overlay of like a schematic, why that's even <laughs> necessary. To make you to make you understand that it's sci-fi, man. I guess. I'll tell you what I don't dig. I don't dig the like computery font, like the thin, weirdly angular letters mm-hmm. of like all mm-hmm. of the little text. Uh, very much what that is, yeah. I also don't dig that uh the yellow lettering of uh, you know, the twenty first century's most most ruthless cr- uh criminal and most dangerous cop. Mm-hmm. It like you you lose half the text in Stallone because of the light color on his outfit. Totally. And then, like, the same thing under Demolition Man, the future isn't big enough for the both of them. That's a decent tagline for this movie. 
it's but lost. It's, it's small. It gets lost in the background. It just that font on this poster, and there's too much text. It's just bad. Yeah, lots of text. Just you know, it feels like the either this was like early, early Photoshop these two shots together because it just doesn't feel like there was like art directed very well. Like you would have gotten a mm-hmm. different shot if you were going to put yellow taglines and light blue taglines. You know, it's just. It feels amateurish, honestly. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I mean, what crazy maniac decided to cover up Wesley Snipes' hairdo with his name? Yeah. That feels like a bad decision. (laughs) They're just like dark, like barely lit profile shots. Yeah. Dull, dull, dull. Too busy, too much going on. Just everything is kind of a bluish color, kind of bland. This needs a Struzan poster where like the bottom third is... Like the cop car with the expanding foam flying through the air or something. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, like a good three-quarter shot of Simon Phoenix, like roundhouse kicking or something. You know what I mean? Like, Man, just just think about it. A, DVD, a new DVD release of this from Shout Factory. Mm, yes. Or a new Blu-ray release, rather. Go on. With all those deleted scenes available to watch of Stallone fighting Jesse Ventura. Mm-hmm. And then a reversible poster with this on one side for the cover. <laughs> mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. then like one of those beautiful, like kind of pink tinted yes. uh, throwback to the 80s uh, cover Sure-fixed. arts that they yeah. get from like whoever the hell does all the art for like uh, the blob and everything for them. Like like with a full extended cut. That's what this movie desperately needs. All right. We got a couple letter uh, writing petitions to get started after tonight. <laughs> yeah. So uh, where do where do you stand on these? Break it down for the people now. Uh, it's easy. Back to the Future Two, top, Blade Runner, mid, Demolition Man, right at the bottom. Yeah, I'll give uh, Back to the Future Two a Crunchwrap Supreme. Mm. I like where this is going. Blade Runner is going to get a beefy five layer burrito, <laughs> and Demolition Man is going to get a single soft taco. Oh. Trash. <laughs> no one wants those. Uh, young Megatron's gonna love this this system. She loves her some Taco Bell. And can't beat that crunch wrap. Ah, <laughs> uh, all right, Millsy baby. Here we go. I well, I'll go ahead and tell you mine. But I'm des- I'm very curious to hear yours. I, I really I know exactly. I, how I think mine's. I think I think mine's couldn't be more clear. But your go. Demolition Man fandom that I wasn't aware of though, like <laughs> I didn't know you were that big of a Demolition Man fan or that yeah. big of a Blade Runner fan. So, <laughs> like all my expectations uh, are now thrown out the window. I said it's two two great movies. It was the best movies of all time. <laughs> so uh, yeah, it. Uh, I got to go back to the future too. Going to buy that one. Mm-hmm. It's funny that with like a sequel to one of the most beloved, like family adventure sci-fi movies of all time. And with one of the most beloved and well-respected science fiction films ever made. I'm so like middle of the road on this whole lineup. <laughs> Honestly. <laughs> It's like, it's kind of hard to decide because not because it's like, oh man, which one of these beloved movies do I have to burn? But it's more like, well, I mean, one of these has to be the top. Which one's it going to be? <laughs> to me, to me coming in, I'm like, ah, oh, this is like the best episode. Three great movies. You're like, which of these stinkers do I put at the top? 
So yeah, Back to the Future 2 gets it. Just, I mean, uh-huh. nostalgia and Doc and Marty running around and, you know, it has really cool special effects and everything. And it's just mm-hmm. a fun movie and, you know, it you know, is not the first one, but it, it is a Back to the Future movie. Mm-hmm. So that gets the number one spot. And, uh, you know, this this next part is the hard part. Mm. But based on i mean we've we've discussed this in the past and we were just having a debate recently with tony about like rating movies and stuff correct off the air and my my feeling has always just been like it's real simple just what do you enjoy yeah and i enjoy demolition man more than i'm ever <laughs> going to enjoy blade runner i mean if anything my multiple viewings of blade runner have proven that yeah. I respect a lot of the aspects of Blade Runner, but it just does not come together into like the complete enjoyable package for me. So despite the fact that Blade Runner uh, wins any fucking contest when it comes to how it looks, mm-hmm. uh, you know, maybe it, maybe Blade Runner would be my borrow if I had turned the sound off and just listened to like FM 84 while I was looking at the visuals. But Okay, uh, yeah, that's a good experiment too, so... <laughs> Yeah, man, Demolition Man is so much more fun to me, and mm. uh, I I own Demolition Man. I do not own Blade Runner. Oh, all right. I would be all about buying a third copy of Demolition Man if Shout Factory puts out the a nice new edition. Mm-hmm. And Blade Runner, you know, there's plenty of fancy editions out there. Uh, maybe one of these days I'll give it a pity buy if I find it for five bucks somewhere. But uh, yeah, it feels harsh, but. Hey, it is what it is. I gotta, I gotta launch it into that sun that never appears in the city of Los Angeles <laughs> oh, in the year twenty. It's still getting the launch forty whatever. Oh. <laughs> All right, that's how the guillotine falls around here. <laughs> Mills, mm-hmm. surprised to no one buying Blade Runner. I mean, you I love, already own ten discs of yeah, it, so I think I have the ten, 10 discs goes worth. Saying. I just watched it today. Quite literally, I could go and watch it again, or even just one of the other versions tomorrow. I do love this movie. I mean, there's just the the eye candy alone makes me want to rewatch it over and over. And then I st- I live every bit of it, anyways. Um, maybe this is contentious. I don't know. Um, maybe people would have things to say to me about it. I don't care. Uh, Do it. I'm borrowing Demolition Man and bringing Back to the Future 2. Even for the sake of this episode, just the future bits of Demolition Man, I like more than the future bits of Back to the Future. Mm-hmm. So theme-wise, it, it registers there, but even just in general, I just enjoy the shit out of Demolition Man. It's funny. It makes me laugh. I like the action bits. It's kind of, you know, it makes me hopeful I'll ever get to see an extended version. But um, by no means, you know, neither are perfect movies. But like you just said, like, what do you enjoy? And if this was the first Back to the Future against Demolition, maybe a different story. But <laughs> yeah, the sequel against this, that's how it goes. But I won't watch Back to the Future Into the Sun. I'll respect it. And I don't know, maybe like a Viking funeral or something. You know, put it on the ship, put it bring, on a ship and hit it with fire with... to it instead of sending it into the fire. <laughs> right. Right. I'll give it a send off where everyone can say goodbye that I shoot flaming arrows at it. Hmm. But uh, yeah, that's the way I'm going. Fair enough. Millsy. I can dig it. Season three. What a time to be alive. Finito. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, party people, take our little bit of a short break, and then we'll see you back for episode 37, yeah, season if, four. If my math is correct, that will be November 4th, 2020. Oh, year, math. Episode 37. Well, Mills, what could it possibly be? Uh, I can't wait to find out. How many episodes do we have, please? 223 themes mm-hmm. currently. Mm-hmm. Here we go. 61, Milsey. 61. Early again. So. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All right. Episode, 60, or, uh, episode 37 of mm-hmm. Triple Threat Theater is going to be the theme self-aware, don't care. I mean, tooting our own horn here, but we come up with great names. Most of them you, but yeah, self-aware, don't care. Love it. <laughs> yeah. This will be good. I'm I'm looking forward to this. I yeah. dig this. Oh, one. yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Self-aware, Glorious. don't care. Yeah, I'm ready. See you soon, friends. Mm-hmm. For Triple Threat Theater, I'm Joe Daxberger. And I'm Ryan Miller. And these moments will be lost like tears in the rain. Thanks for watching. Oh. That was one of the finest movies I've ever seen. They ought to make them all like that. None of this nonsense about social matters. People don't go to the movies to see how miserable the world is. They go there to eat popcorn and be happy. Be happy. Be happy. Be happy. Be happy.